It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I am ready when you are ready. <laughs> no, I am ready. Ready? I was born ready. Advisory Opinions. I'm David French with Sarah Isger. And maybe we should just call this one, Thank You, Supreme Court. Because we had nothing for a podcast. We were slacking back and forth. And there was a Deseret News article about a former Supreme Court justice that was kind of interesting, pretty interesting. Um, We were wondering, are there comments, questions in the comments that were particularly noteworthy. We we were scrambling. Then, Sarah, the Supreme Court comes through, grants cert in multiple cases, including two that I'm particularly interested in. And then we have a little bit of a appellate Twitter drama. But why don't you walk us through the Supreme Court cert grants with an, with an attitude of gratitude for salvaging our podcast. And there's two in particular I want to drill down on both of them. And well, one is involving um, free speech. The other one involving religious accommodation. So uh, speech and religion, two of our favorite topics on advisory opinions. Um, But yeah, what, what all's happened, Sarah? Well, we've talked about conferences and relisting before, and it was sort of a relistapalooza the last few weeks. And then boom, eight cert grants with actually 11 cases, several consolidated cases in that. Um, and lots of good ones. And don't forget, we're getting to the end of cert grants that will be heard this term. In fact, I would say that we're within the, the week now where any cert grants over the next two weeks could really go either way. And don't forget, we have those social media bill cases in Florida and Texas pending in conference. So even if those get granted, uh, you know, coin flip of whether they'll be this term or next term. And um, that's just a super interesting question because they already have all of these tech cases for this term. So if you're the Supreme Court justices, do you want to have sort of the tech term and make sure that additional tech cases get heard within the same term? or sort of let that ride for a little bit and push them to next term. I think there's really good arguments on both sides of that, which we've talked about before. But these were some fun ones, David, and we had been watching a few of these. We've mentioned a few of them when they were down in the lower courts, and here they are. They've made it to the major leagues. So we're going to talk about four of the eight um, and apologies to the other four cases that we're not talking about the False Claims Act case, the Sovereign Immunity case, Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. You know what? We may get to you if the arguments are awesome, but today. Yeah, you're going to have to step it up in the arguments to, 
<laughs> we want to see some big stuff in argument. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of want to go in reverse order here. So okay. actually, I'm going to save your fun cases for the end. The first case is a consolidated case on an immigration question that I find really interesting. So first guy is a citizen of Mauritius. Is that how you say that country? Mauritius? Mauritius? Someone will tell us. I'm terribly embarrassed. I didn't do very well in high school geography. I'm going Uh, with Mauritius. Okay. Mauritius. Okay. He's lived in the United States as a lawful permanent resident for 40 years but then pled guilty, actually, was convicted of being an accessory after the fact to a felony. Now, if you are convicted of an aggravated felony, there is mandatory removal from the country. And one way in which you know something's an aggravated felony is if it's an offense relating to obstruction of justice. Okay, so let me tell you about number two, guy, because I said this is a consolidated case. A citizen of Mexico, lawful permanent resident since 1965. Wow. Was arrested in connection with sexual assaults of patients whom he treated in his role as a psychologist for Santa Barbara County. Convicted in state court on several charges, including discouraging two witnesses from reporting a crime. Same thing. He's Mm -hmm. under removal orders because it's an aggravated felony because that's an offense relating to obstruction of justice. So at the Supreme Court on this one, they've granted cert because the question here is whether obstruction of justice has to be about an ongoing proceeding. Because you'll notice in these two cases, discouraging a witness from reporting a crime, that's not what we would generally have called obstruction of justice, David, Mm -hmm. Um, lying to investigators, misleading prosecutors. um, That's an ongoing investigation or official proceeding that you're obstructing. But if you're just discouraging a witness from reporting a crime, clearly you're doing that in anticipation of a proceeding. Mm -hmm. Is that enough to be obstruction of justice? And same, of course, with the accessory after the fact to a felony. Again, Imagine the situation where, you know, you help hide the guy as he's running away from the bank robbery. (laughs) You're an accessory after the fact, but that's not necessarily obstructing an ongoing proceeding. Right. I think that'll be pretty interesting. And so here, of course, not surprisingly to people, we have a circuit split on this question. Um, You know, I, I think these criminal process and procedure questions are really interesting. And David, you and I tend to think the tie goes to the runner. Right. In this case, the Supreme Court rejected as a QP question presented on that cert petition, whether offense relating to obstruction of justice is ambiguous. So this will, in fact, not look at that, but really only whether obstruction of justice has to relate to an ongoing proceeding or the anticipation of an ongoing proceeding is enough. And the consequences, as I said, I mean, you know, one guy got 12 months in prison, nine of which were suspended, but he is under mandatory removal from the country after being here for 40 years. So high stakes for these defendants who are lawful permanent residents. You know, this isn't someone on a student visa or something. Um, So that's number one, thoughts, feelings 
Um, I don't have many thoughts, feelings on that one. Um, I think it's interesting to bring it up. Barely. <laughs> barely interesting enough to bring it up. I'm, I'm much You're barely more, interesting. <laughs> you are barely interesting, Garland cases. The next one, I'm actually m- quantum levels more fascinated by. And, and this isn't one of the two. That's the right. Ty- Tyler v. Hennepin County, that one. I know. I know you'd be into this one. <laughs> okay. So this will have some aroma of Kilo, I think, mm-hmm. for listeners who have been following the Supreme Court for a long time. Kilo, of course, is that takings case where they uh, condemn an old woman's property and take it for public use, basically saying it's a nuisance because it could be better used, frankly, for sort of commercial value. It was a blight. And there was a lot of controversy over that because in the end, they said that, yep, the local city council can take that property under its blight statute. um, And that that meets the Fifth Amendment requirements for a taking for public use, even if it's commercial public use. So why do I say this has aromas a kilo? Well, we've got another old lady (laughs) Uh, 93 years old, in fact. She fails to pay $2,500 in her property taxes. And then through fines, interest, penalties, the number goes up to 15,000. Right. So they seize her house and foreclose upon it, then sell it for $40,000. It's a condo, actually. Uh, So she owed them $15,000. They sell it for $40,000. And what happens to the remaining money, David? Well, they kept it, Sarah. They kept the money (laughs) (laughs) because under Minnesota law, that's exactly what you do when you don't pay your property taxes. That's actually not against you. They can't move against you, David. It's NREM, as in they move against the property which I know is this for non-lawyers, NREM stuff is so dumb sounding. It's why you see case names that are like, you know, Hennepin County versus 40 red trucks (laughs) because you're actually (laughs) suing the property. It goes way back to the common law. We don't need to get into property law and NREM suits right now. But the point is because they move against the property and the property is forfeited, the title belongs to... Hennepin County in this case. And so at that point, they don't owe her anything is their argument. She, however, has a different argument represented by Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, arguing that this violates the takings clause and, fun little twist, violates the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment that, you know, she owed $15,000. You can sell, you can take the property, you can sell the property, you can take your $15,000, but anything above that is an excessive fine violating the Eighth Amendment. David, what say you? Give that woman her $25,000. <laughs> I I think this is a uh, fascinating case. Um, I, I, the seizure of the additional $25,000 um, that's, that's an excessive taking. I mean, if you owe 15,000, if you owe 15,000, you don't owe 40,000. In this case, they sold the, to satisfy the debt to 15,000 and then just take 25 grand and 
in a windfall. Now, <laughs> I do think that they could say as a matter of statute that you, if it's 15000 and we sell it, we should recoup the 15000 plus whatever costs were incurred in the sale, whether it's like an auctioneer or transfer. Oh, that's included, I believe. But yeah. 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 So I mean, remember, she only owed 2500 in property taxes. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. This is this is also another illustration of how the system of fines and penalties really can impoverish poor citizens. Um, Pacific Legal Foundation actually cites in their cert petition a case where the um, property was seized over $8. Like the, the initial nut was an $8 unpaid fine. Right, right. And oh man, Sarah, okay, this is trigger warning. There should have been a trigger warning on reading the facts of this case. But <laughs> no, the failure to pay pop property taxes if these property taxes are lawful and the property and the penalties and interest, et cetera, it's all lawful penalties. Got it. Understand. I believe it's problematic that $2,500 can turn into $15,000. Um, but let's put that aside for the moment. $2,500 turns into 15,000 shouldn't then turn into 40 when the remaining 25 are disconnected to any scheme of penalties and interest related to the original offense. So uh, yeah, this this is a taking. She's entitled, that was a taking without uh, compensation. She should receive the $25,000, Sarah. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? Look, I think anyone listening to this is like, this is insane. How is this <laughs> even going to the Supreme Court? So let me provide a little bit of, I think some additional legal color here. So there is a circuit split. I'm not sure that's the right term here. Basically, you have a bunch of different states that allow this under state law. Right. But each of those state laws are going to be slightly different. And so Hennepin County argues, this isn't a circuit split. This is just us applying our state law. Um, and that, you know, we distributed the money because the title then belonged to us. The, the property, again, this is an NREM um, proceeding. And so the property title moved over to us. So it's not her $25,000 in any sense of the term, because we couldn't move against her for the money. So if for instance, she didn't owe that own that property to begin with, um, they would not have been able to get the property taxes from her, which is a little confusing because mm -hmm. obviously you can't owe property taxes on something you don't own. I will say that I thought the reply from Minnesota, so Minneapolis, Hennepin County, that's the area right. we're talking about, um, was a, uh, not great, not great Hennepin County. And I'm sorry, it's <laughs> not that you didn't have some arguments here, but you sounded like jerks. <laughs> so <laughs> Now, I did not read the reply, so I please enlighten us. I just think when you're talking about a 93-year-old woman who clearly has a pretty sympathetic case, you're not going to want to blame her throughout your petition. <laughs> so let me read you one part of this. So this is their introduction. This case concerns petitioner's complaint that after she failed to pay her property taxes for so many years that she forfeited absolute title to the state, Hennepin County resold the property and did not disperse any of the proceeds to her. Minnesota, like many other states, provides ample opportunity for property owners to protect their interests before a parcel of real estate forfeits the enforcement measure of last resort. Upon forfeiture, the state takes absolute title and all liens are extinguished. 
Minnesota has raised revenue through the taxation of real estate and enforced the same through the sale of land since it was a territory. Nonetheless, petitioner says that although the state simply sold its own land, she alone is entitled to all of the surplus proceeds from the sale, (laughs) notwithstanding the years of notice she received and the many opportunities she had to protect her property interest before the final forfeiture. Do they not, do they not understand what this case is about? (laughs) So I think their best argument in that whole paragraph is that this has been the law since it was a territory. Yeah. I.e. this idea that this is somehow unconstitutional. Really? Because Mm -hmm. it's been happening for a hundred plus years and all of a sudden it, you know, the fifth amendment and the eighth amendment have been around that whole time. That's a good argument. Not totally the argument they make. Instead, it's that at any point she could have paid the fine. The whole point is that she couldn't pay it. <laughs> she couldn't pay the fine. So what happens? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like her her fault. She's not saying that she doesn't owe the $15,000. She's not arguing that, for instance, she only owes $2,500 and that the you know additional $12,000 in interest and fines isn't owed. It's the rest of it. So I thought that was, it wasn't snarky by any means, but it was just sort of missing Missing the point, if you will. And then let me read one other part of this. As a remedy, petitioner sought the difference between the property's value and the tax debt. Notably, petitioner did not allege that she was unable to pay her property taxes, that she tried to pay them, or that she lacked adequate time or notice. Petitioner also did not allege that the consequences of her forfeiture were unknown to her. But that's not the point. That's not the point. (laughs) The point is that if it violates the takings clause or if it violates the Eighth Amendment, all of that could actually cut very much against her. She had the money the whole time. She just chose not to pay it. She absolutely knew that that would mean forfeiting her land, um, that she didn't try to pay it, that she did have plenty of time and notice to pay it, and that you still don't get to take the windfall. Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I was pretty unpersuaded by the reply. And it seems like the Supreme Court was too. So they're taking this. And I think this case will get compared to Kilo in a lot of ways. Obviously, it is a Fifth Amendment case, but it's a different, you know, different words in the Fifth Amendment that we're looking at here. Nevertheless, there have been some important personnel changes on the court since Kilo. And I think the outrage to Kilo has resulted in a more um, property owner friendly Supreme Court in the intervening uh, 18 years now, I think. Yeah, it's been a long time. And a while. Yeah. No, I, I think this case is a winner for our 93-year-old petitioner. And I would just urge the, case, the court to go ahead and hear that this term. Chop, chop, 93-year-old. <laughs> and if there's ever an argument for this being the first opinion it issued, like if this is this is not that controversial to everyone on the court, yeah, just go ahead and issue this opinion. Good point. We've got a little bit of a like old lady on the Titanic vibe here, I feel like. <laughs> right. um, and just to read the text for those who uh, don't have it memorized, Fifth Amendment, um, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation and the eighth amendment excessive bail shall not be required nor excessive fines imposed nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Most people just know that last part on the cruel and unusual punishment. So worth reading the whole thing. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, we've got two out of the way, David. I know, I know. And that, that uh, the property case, it's got me fired up, but not as much. Not as much as these next two, which are very interesting. Very okay. interesting. Can we do true threats next? Because I'm very excited about the truth. <laughs> yes, let's let's please. This this one to me is actually the more interesting of the two. Um, I think so too. Yeah, no, completely. And it's particularly interesting for this internet era. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. So I believe we've talked about this case very briefly before when it was coming up. Um, but basically uh, this guy friends a musician in Colorado on Facebook and then proceeds to send her deranged, threatening, a lot of messages on Facebook. And we'll read some of those to you in a little bit. Um, some of which have some cursing in them. Just we'll, we'll bleep out the cursing <laughs> or, you know, using our voices, bleep it out. <laughs> um, uh, but just so you're aware. And she goes to the, she blocks him on Facebook. She goes to the police um, and says that it, you know, violates the stalking statute. So he's arrested. She gets an order of protection. He's arrested um, and is convicted. Now at trial, he says free speech, right? And mm -hmm. the prosecutor's like, no, no, dude. True threats are not protected free speech. And so now the Supreme Court has granted cert on this question of whether are true threats in the eye of the beholder? As in, it's a reasonable person standard. If a reasonable person yeah. would think that their life was in, you know, or, or physical person was in danger, that that's an objective, reasonable person standard. Or do you have to show some sort of mens rea that the person making the quote unquote threats intended them to be threats or knew that they were likely to be interpreted as threats? Um, so... Arnold and Porter has this case. John Elwood is counsel of record. I mentioned that because I'm actually going to talk about a tweet from John Elwood <laughs> later in this. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's really fun. But on lawyers we highlight here, we actually haven't talked about John Elwood a lot. And he is one of those Supreme Court practitioners that we should have mentioned more. So I'm just going to give a short bio for John Elwood for those curious uh, how you end up here with the true threats case, he worked at the Department of Justice for freaking ever. So started in 1994, um, made it through the uh, criminal division, attorney general's office, solicitor general, office of legal counsel. Forgot to mention he was a Kennedy clerk. Went to that other law school, David, you know, the, mm. the New Haven one. Mm -hmm. Meh. Yeah. But now has argued tons of cases at the Supreme Court, lots of boring ones, frankly, sorry, John, um, and a, f <laughs> a few interesting ones on guns, for instance. And this one, which I think is going to be John Elwood's most interesting argument before the court, but that's probably because you and I super geek out on this stuff. So with that introduction to what I think is now one of the more exciting cases 
of the term. Just top line, David, when you first read this, do you think true threats should be whether a reasonable person would think they were being threatened or whether the person who's making the statements had some intentionality? Boy, I, you know, I read this and I, I read this, I reread this, honestly, Sarah, and I've gone back and forth in my mind on this uh, two or three times. And I feel like I, uh, it's, it's hard. As a general matter, this idea that intent is less relevant than impact, that's a bit of a dangerous idea. But in this circumstance, the how a reasonable person perceives this, how a reasonable person perceives the threat or the, the communication, I'm jumping forward to call them threats, how a person or a reasonable person perceives the communication seems to be really truly aimed at what prohibiting true threats is about. That And worth noting here that it's not heckler's veto, right? This right. isn't that if the person who received them believed that they were true threats, exactly. that then you're liable. It is an objective standard, whether right. a reasonable person would do so. So we're avoiding some of the problems that you and I have talked about of um, overly sensitive sort of eggshell yes. uh, victims, if you will. That's not the issue here. But nevertheless, you do run into a similar-ish problem. If the person didn't intend for them to be threatening and had no idea that they would be taken as threatening does and that person may not be reasonable and in this case i think it's fair to say this person is not reasonable right. and right. probably not a mentally healthy person should that matter because in so much of our criminal law you have to have some sort of mens rea some sort of guilty mind right exactly it, it, that's why i keep going back and forth on this but when it comes to, and, and again, I, I, well, I think it's incredibly important that you pointed out that when you say reasonable person, that is intended to be an objective standard, not a subjective standard. So it's another way of saying, are these messages objectively threatening, uh, as would be the question. Are, are not, and I think when we say reasonable person believe, that's a clear signal in the legal world that objective standard, objective standard, objective standard as defined by the judge and precedent, but objective nonetheless. And I, I really do feel like that when you're talking about, as I go back and forth, and, and I'm going to be fascinated by the oral arguments, the oral arguments might change my mind on this. But as of right now, when you're talking about a, uh, what is the offense what is it that the pro criminal prohibition against true threats, what is it trying to accomplish? What it's trying to accomplish, in my mind, is exactly what the statute was aimed at, and that is protecting a sense of personal safety. Again, reasonable, objective sense of personal safety, but protecting that sense of personal safety in the community. And... So that in that standpoint, the objective test seems to me to be a quite reasonable test here. Uh, the more the test of in the intention test, I think, isn't quite getting at what the statute is aimed at, the legitimate government interest that the statute is aimed at. So um, I'm that's where I am on it right now. But it's a it's a mild lean and. Where are you, Sarah? And then uh, listeners, think through, the, think this through, and then we'll read the communications. But wh where are you? Where are you on this? 
I, I think I am in favor of an objective person standard because otherwise you end up with almost a reverse eggshell. Yeah. Victim eggshell plaintiff problem. Where as long as the person making the statements is so out of their mind or so unempathetic um, and hateful, I guess, that somehow that would then get you out of something where another defendant with the exact same statements would be convicted. Um, So I think that's where I am. But I'm with you that I think because this is speech, because I don't like the idea of criminalizing speech only, Mm -hmm. that's where my hesitation is. But I think if this weren't a speech issue, it would be very easy for me that this is one of those like, ah, I I don't think that you need to prove mens rea. Um, You know, for instance, (laughs) well, I won't get into a bunch of for instances that are then going to get picked apart in the comments, but there's lots of crimes where you need the mens rea to do the thing you did but not the mens rea to intend the effect. Does that make sense? Yes. So you need to have intended, you need to know you were hitting the person. You don't need to know you hurt them. You didn't need to mean to hurt them. It's still assault if you knew that you hit them. And in this case, you knew you were sending these messages. And I know that's not the same thing, but it's not like it's mens rea free or something. It's just mens rea different. Okay, with that, I'm going to read you the Facebook messages. Yes. And these, I, I don't think we need some huge warning here. They're not disturbing no. or anything. No. Uh, okay. Was that you in the white Jeep? Five years on Facebook, only a couple physical sightings. Seems like I'm being talked about more than I'm being talked to. This isn't healthy. I've had tapped phone lines before. What do you fear? I'm currently unsupervised. I know it freaks me out too, but the possibilities are endless. Uh, There's images of liquor bottles captioned, a guy's version of edible arrangements. How can I take your interest in me seriously if you keep going back to my rejected existence? F off permanently. Your arrogance offends anyone in my position. You're not being good for human relations. Die. Don't need you. Talking to others about me isn't pro-life sustaining for my benefit. Cut me a break already. Are you a solution or a problem? Your chase, bet. You do not talk and you have my phone hacked. I didn't choose this life. Staying in cyber life is going to kill you. Come out for coffee. You have my number. A fine display with your partner. Okay, then please stop the phone calls. Your response is nothing attractive. Tell your friend to get lost. So I think you can bucket these into a few things. One, Harmless weird. Right. You know, a guy's version of edible arrangements. All right, whatever. Um, Two, uh, death threats. You know, die, F off permanently. But of course, that's actually protected as long as it, you know, I can tell David to die right now and he can't arrest me because it's very clear to a reasonable person listening to this podcast that I'm not threatening David's life. Right. Um, And it's very like under any of these tests, objective person test, my intention test, die, David, die because you like Aquaman. Not a true threat. (laughs) A little harsh. (laughs) A little harsh. (laughs) Then there's the the third bucket. I'm going to call the stalking bucket. Um, The thing about the white Jeep. I've only seen you a couple times. Things that imply that 
Um, he knows where she is, that he's been following her. The phone hacking thing's a little more confusing because at first you think that he's saying he has her phones hacked. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is bucket number four, just the truly like mentally ill deranged bucket where he's basically, it sounds like believes that she has hacked his phones. And so you, you know, I'm off my meds, things like that. Um, so those are sort of the four buckets of statements that I see here. And the problem I think is that in bucket number four, where this is clearly a mentally unwell, unstable person, that probably does discount some of the mens rea, that he does not know that a reasonable person would take these as true threats. But of course, me, the woman in Colorado who's receiving these, she's a musician. That's presumably why he picked her. Um, He'd heard her music or something, was a fan of some kind. Um, If I'm getting these, I'm not comforted by the fact that this is someone who might be suffering from schizophrenia or might think that I'm a robot from Mars. You know, those people can be violent as well. Those can be true threats as well, even if they're not stable threats. And so again, you get back to the like, what is the purpose of the law? Who are we trying to protect here? What is the purpose then of the First Amendment? You're getting to sort of first principles on so many of these things. Yeah. And when I, when I read these, I think that any given one of these messages doesn't necessarily get, get you there. Um, with the exception of possibly you're not being good for human relations, die, don't need you. Well, uh, could that be a death threat or a death aspiration <laughs> where they're just sort of hoping something happens to you? But that that gets pretty close to a, a just a direct threatening declaration. But for me, it was the totality here, Sarah. It was um, all of these things in connection indicate stalking in the sense of trying to find her in the real world, derangement in that, this person's got some paranoia, um, is, is somebody who is um, not exactly, uh, obviously not all there. Um, and then intent, and then I'll combine that with violent intent or violent aspiration. All of these things together, it's that, it's that I'm following you or finding you in real life. Um, I'm not all there. And I think you should die. <laughs> like, put all those things together, Sarah. And this is not just trolling, like Twitter trolling. Um, this is something that indicates uh, a much, much more serious threat. And so to me, when you looked at all of these things together, 100% does a reasonable person believe that they are in a degree of danger here. 100%. This is the kind of thing that if this filled your Twitter DMs or this was messaged to you or texted to you or emailed to you, sent to you that directly, that one-on-one, that one-to-one communication, you, this would absolutely reasonably freak you out. <laughs> this would make you feel like you are in danger. And it's hard for me to sort of see a counter argument to that. Like what... Would this not make you feel in danger? Would you not feel as if somebody is trying to find you in real life, that somebody has got a deadly intention towards you? 
Um, this seems to me an extremely reasonable conclusion in totality where his main defense seems to be, I'm just maybe too unbalanced to really know what my words mean. Um, that seems to not so much trigger a First Amendment defense as it does perhaps some sort of sanity defense um, doesn't have the capacity to understand what they did was right versus wrong. But that that's not the same thing as getting you that's not the same thing as saying the First Amendment protects my speech. It's much more classic sanity kind of defense, which would channel you, if successful, into a mental health track as opposed to, say, the criminal justice track. But I, I think this is a, a, a really good case to tease out those differences. Okay, so we've done the first principles of the law. Yep. We've done the facts of the case. Now let's do a little Supreme Court precedent. So uh, true threats are taken as an exception to the First Amendment back in 1969. Mm -hmm. Since then, it's been a hot mess. So <laughs> in 2003, the Supreme Court held that true threats, quote, encompass those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence. So I think that's what gives rise to our problem here. Means to communicate. Right. According to whom? Objective or subjective? Fine. That then creates the circuit split that we have right now, um, which has, you know, been a problem since 2003 and really to some extent since 1969, but fine. So then in 2015, the Supreme Court takes the case to decide the objective versus subjective in Alanis. <laughs> But once they got the case, they <laughs> decided it on pretty narrow grounds, basically saying that the federal threat offense requires a guilty mind as a necessary element and that a reasonable person standard is inconsistent with the conventional requirements for criminal conduct, awareness of some wrongdoing. You have Justice Alito uh, lamenting, as John Elwood writes in the cert petition, that the court had compounded, not clarified the confusion. Justice Thomas basically saying the court failed to decide and acknowledging the circuit split throws everyone from appellate judges to everyday Facebook users into a state of uncertainty. So you had a split court decision on narrow grounds that didn't decide this larger question. And that brings us to today. So you've got the Okay. <laughs> First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, 11th <laughs> circuits, as well as Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Connecticut, California, Hawaii, Iowa, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, North Dakota, Oregon, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Washington, and Washington, D.C. on objective standard. On the subjective side, ninth and 10th circuits, Kansas, Massachusetts, North Carolina, and Rhode Island requiring proof that the speaker intended the statement as a threat. Georgia requires knowledge that the statement will be viewed as a threat. Illinois and Pennsylvania require recklessness as to whether the statements will be viewed as a threat. And nine states are subject to conflicting state and federal standards. So the constitutional protection given uh, depends on the happenstance of the courthouse in which the case is prosecuted. Hot freaking mess. 
Um, and in that sense, there isn't really precedent for the court to apply because the precedent in that 2003 case or even going back to the Watts case, very much just open to interpretation on objective versus subjective. And then if it is subjective, whether it's what the person himself was trying to convey or whether um, they knew that someone else might have that objective standard. I mean, messy, messy, messy. Yeah, it's extremely messy. And, you know, the intent-based standard, it's it's interesting that the question is framed as that heightened motive or that heightened uh, intent standard is somehow more speech protective than maybe the reasonable person standard. Is it, I mean, is it, is it the case that if it's a motive-based test that some speech that would not seem right. to be to a reasonable person to be threatening is threatening because of, because of the motive? Um, and so it's not exactly clear to me which one of these is more speech protective. And we don't like looking at the motive behind speech either. I mean, right. that's also a part of our free speech, you know, pantheon. Exactly. Exactly. So it's the thing, the clear, what's clearly speech protective is that this is not, the heckler's veto is off the table. In other words, the purely subjective, I felt threatened, regardless of the reasonableness of my feeling, that's off the table. So that you've got either a, a, a high motive requirement, or you've got that uh, objective person standard, which is also heightened beyond sort of the heckler's veto, my subjective feelings govern. So it is actually not clear to me which one of these is legitimately more speech protective. I do feel like the reasonable person standard is more, I think it provides a better guidance. Yes, easier to follow, more guidance for lower courts. There's a reason that that first list who follow the objective standard is much, much longer than the other list. Exactly. And in many ways, when you have that reasonable person test, when you have that objective standard, because you're providing guidelines, because you're providing real standards, it's ultimately more speech protective in the long run than tests that are much more subjective, exploring going into someone's state of mind. So yeah, I, I do not think it should be cast as one of these two is more speech protective. I, I that that I I'm I would dispute one of the two is probably or one of the two is more defendant friendly, which is not you know a constitutional standard, <laughs> but it is but kind of kind of yeah, tie goes yeah, to the runner, tie goes the runner right, sort of yeah. built in there. Right, I think that John Elwood and team lose this case. However, a I'm really glad he brought the case. Mm-hmm. Worthwhile entirely. Number two, there's actually a way in which he loses this case at the end, as in his client um, is convicted, but actually wins this case at the Supreme Court because there, um, it, it does seem to me, based on some of the trial transcript that he included and what the prosecutor said uh, for the jury instructions and closing argument and stuff, may not have even applied the objective standard test correctly. Mm-hmm. So you could get this remanded back to redo it applying right. the correct, clear guidance from the Supreme right. Court on what the objective standard test actually is. I'd be fine with that. Um, and again, uh, really excited to hear oral argument in that case and open to being persuaded. Yeah, I'm open to being persuaded as well. But I'm at the moment more in the view that this these were threats under an objective standard 
and taken into context. And the objective standard is the proper standard. But again, persuadable on the point. And if commenters, you you want to persuade us, uh, please do so. Do so without threatening us, though. I will say that <laughs> most of the things I get are more like someone hoping that I die versus that they themselves are planning to bring it about. Yeah, the death aspiration is more common <laughs> yes. than the death threat. Much more yeah. common, which I think I, every time I read some one of them, I'm like, were you just being super careful? Like, do you understand the law in this area? Or are you genuinely a kinder person who <laughs> wants me to be dead, but like definitely has the character of self not to want to be a murderer? <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a kind of common form of communication in social media is the... Yeah, I hope you die. Yes, wishing death. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Happy times. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last case that we're going to talk about, also a fun one. This is mm -hmm. the religious case. So Gerald Groff is a U.S. Postal Service employee. And he... Uh, recognizes the Sabbath on Sunday and does not want to work on Sundays. Basically, once the U.S. Postal Service starts partnering with Amazon, suddenly there is Sunday delivery for U.S. postal workers. Right. Now, those contracts didn't happen all at once, so he actually moves locations, moves to a different postal branch that hasn't signed the Amazon contract just so he can continue not working Sundays. Then that place signs the contract as well. At that point, um, he says that he'll take extra shifts during the week if he can just not work on Sundays. Yada, yada, yada. They say no in the end. Okay, so first up, you have Title VII, which provides that it shall be unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals, religion. The term religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice, belief, etc. unless an employer demonstrates that he is unable to reasonably accommodate to an employee's or prospective employee's religious observance or practice without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Okay, I just want to read that last part again. Yes. Without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. So this case is going to turn on two parts of that. One, what is an undue hardship? And two, what is the employer's business? And does that include um, burden on coworkers? Is that part of the employer's business, even if it doesn't affect their underlying profit margin, for instance? Right. Okay. So then come to 1977, the famous... Transworld Airline versus Hardison case. It's nearly identical to this. I think in that case, the Sabbath observer was a Saturday Sabbath observer, but um, otherwise very, very similar. Did not want to work on their Sabbath. And in that case, the court held <laughs> that 
that in fact, that undue hardship standard could be met with if you had to impose anything more than a de minimis cost on the employer. So instead of undue hardship, it becomes anything at all that you would have to do to accommodate the religious observance. People who are in favor of religious liberty have long pointed to this as an egregious, atextual, made up, way over the top friendly to employers. Of course, Justice Marshall famously in his dissent said it made a mockery of Title VII. Three of the current justices have called for its reconsideration. And somewhere along the line in the last few days, David, they found a fourth. This case is going up. I am sure you have had a bee in your bonnet about Hardison for some time. (laughs) I have had a bee in my bonnet about Hardison. It just defends the textualist in me, Sarah. Without undue hardship, and defining undue hardship as anything more than a de minimis, I mean, a minimal inconvenience to the employer. So that is an absolute distortion of what undue hardship, which I admit is not a necessarily super clear f- phrase. <laughs> undue hardship is, is vague. But I don't think a reasonable person reading undue hardship then immediately stampedes to, well, anything more than minimal, anything more than de minimis. Uh, That to me is the real issue here, that undue hardship has to mean something more than all but the most minimal uh, accommodations are not going to be required. That, That it can't seem to me on the second prong of this, the conduct of the employer's business I'm a little bit more sympathetic depending on the facts. And if the facts are that the accommodation has caused such a hardship to other employees, um, that that to me is bleeding into the business. Um, but it is, so I'm more sympathetic on that prong. Interesting, because at some point when you've inconvenienced your coworkers so much, for instance, Correct. they're having to work double shifts on Sundays, including on Christmas or whatever else, you know, holidays, that that might actually affect your ability to retain employees, perhaps. Correct, yes. Or that, that might, you might need yeah. to pay those employees more in order to keep them even sort of baseline happy with their jobs, that type of thing. Yeah, but that's more than like annoyance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to work Saturday. You wanted to work Sunday. And now I have to flip the two. That's annoying to me. That's annoying. Yeah, that's annoyance, uh, which that that I don't think is the factor. You would have to show that the negative impact on the employees was substantial enough to impact the employer. But I don't think that impact on employees And I'm not sure that, you know, Kelly and his team are arguing that impact on employees is not relevant at all. Um, But impact on employees can be a factor in considering the conduct of the employer's business. But to me, the the undue hardship prong here, that's, that's the real issue. That's the heart of it. Here you have Congress saying, uh, requiring a, a reasonable accommodation when there is no un, without when there's no undue hardship and that's been turned into something else entirely and i don't think it's you know th- again this this is if you if you think that's too protective 
of religious employees, especially considering, you know, how diverse our country is and how many different kinds of religious accommodations you might encounter. If you think that's too protective of religious employees, well, you can revise the statute. But the statute says without undue hardship. That's what the law says. And this judicial interpretation of it that says anything more than de minimis is undue hardship uh, to, is distorting the the mean the plain meaning of the statute in my view what what are your thoughts oh i mean so first of all when they talk about three justices that have been criticizing hard partisan did i just <laughs> yeah. totally blanked on the name i was confusing it with hardeman the circuit third circuit judge obviously it's alito gorsuch thomas in our 333 grouping i'm very curious so you you go into this with three votes yeah. to overturn it uh, I am curious who that fourth vote was, because as we've said before, you really do need to count to five here. And this thing does get narrowed as you pick up a fourth and fifth vote, potentially, regardless of what Alito and Thomas have said in their dissents on denial of cert on some of these other cases that have come up. Um, so that's always a fun time. Yeah. And, you know, and I fully recognize the phrase undue hardship is not self-defining. <laughs> it is, it's a pretty vague standard. And so the, then the logical question is, okay, if it's not more than de minimis, what is the definition of undue hardship? And that's, that's where I get pretty sympathetic to the notion that, well, there's going to have to be a judicial sort of sharpening of that phrase. I, I totally get that. But the sharpening is not anything more than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and de minimis, de minimis is a synonym for essentially nothing, basically nothing. So uh, undue hardship is going to be, is not going to be uh, just anything more than nothing. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, it, I'm, I'm reminded of the old Casey undue burden. Uh, and the undue burden standard for uh, abortion wasn't anything more than nothing. There had to be some sort of more substantial impediment to the exercise of the right. But it's, that's a little bit apples and oranges, of course. But that, that word undue, undue hardship, undue burden, um, that's going to require some sharpening. But it was sharpened in the wrong direction in TWA. At least that's, that's my view. Do you remember the Gorsuch and Alito dissent from denial of cert back in 2021? This is that case with the electrician who was a Jehovah's Witness, uh, Jason Small. So here's just a little bit of the factual background on that. He worked as an electrician at Memphis Light, Gas, and Water. He then had to switch to being a dispatcher. This job came with a different schedule and mandatory overtime duties, Sometimes the new hours conflicted with his religious obligations, like worship services on Sunday mornings. So I know, for instance, he had to do Wednesday evenings, Sundays, some Saturday, and some other, you know, special occasions, holidays, etc. Okay, so he asked his employer to place him on reduced pay temporarily while he sought reassignment to a different position. The company had a history of offering the same accommodation to other employees, including those removed from their positions for unsatisfactory job performance. But when it came to Mr. Small, the company balked. Um, so he sort of did the best he could. He used vacation days when necessary. But then on Good Friday, 
They initially agreed to let him use a vacation day. Then they backtracked, canceled his vacation request. He went to church anyway, so they suspended him without pay. Um, This case, by the way, if you remember, the cert petition was filed in June of 2020, and it was held over from conference 11 times. That's 12 times they talk about the case until you get this denial uh, in April 5th, 2021. So I mean, almost a year they were sitting on this case and you have the dissent from denial from Gorsuch and Alito, um, you know, basically saying Hardison is bad law and stupid law. That de minimis thing is out of nowhere. And, you know, going back to this case about, for instance, they were giving better accommodations to the people with poor job performance, but they didn't need to do that for Mr. Small because of that Hardison de minimis requirement. He didn't get preferential treatment because his was a religious objection. If anything, he got worse treatment. So that was 2021. There've been a couple other flim flams around denial of certs with maybe not as good of vehicles. Uh, And there we are. There were not four votes at that point. And then today, all of a sudden, we know we've got at least four. Fascinating. Very, very. Yeah, this suggests to me that the counting to five has probably occurred. (laughs) 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 Uh, But, you know, again, we'll we'll see about that. But this has been something I remember, Sarah, I've had to be in my bonnet about TWA since law school. Since law school, this is one of those cases when you're walking through and you read it and your hand shoots up immediately in class. You're like, wait a second, undue burden. Undue burden. Undue burden doesn't mean more than de minimis. Where did that come from? Um, But yeah, it's, it's, and, and I do think, I also do think that from a policy standpoint, what, what is the policy that this statute was trying to enact? Um, more than de minimis is going against the policy that was plainly intended by this statute. Look, we have a really diverse country. We have an increasingly diverse country. We want it to be hospitable to people of many different faiths, of any faith, of no faith at all. And and part of that is going to involve accommodation. And, um, you know, we we had a case that we've not talked about a, a very recent, this is in December of 2022, the United States Court of Appeals, the DC Circuit, granted a um, granted relief for Sikh members of the military and said, uh, and, and specifically of the Marine Corps, and a prompt entry of a, and here I'm going to read some of the, the language here. It's a very brief per curiam judgment. And it says uh, that ordered in a judge the district court's denial of pro- preliminary injunctive relief for Jaskarat Singh and Milap Chahal, a sorry gentleman, if I butchered to pronunciation the name, be reversed and the case be remanded to the district court for the prompt entry of a preliminary injunction requiring the Marine Corps to allow Jaskarat Singh and, Ch- and Chahal to enlist without shaving their, beer- their heads or beards and while bearing those articles of faith and that the government failed to argue against on appeal and for further consideration, blah, 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 blah. In other words, there is an accommodation here, even for the Marine Corps, that is going to allow these Sikh service members to make, keep their beards. There's already been 
uh, previous decisions allowing Sikh service members to wear a turban um, in all services, including the Marine Corps. I'm also reminded of a recent case requiring accommodation, Sarah, even in prison for short beards for Muslim prisoners. And I think what you find, the more accommodations that you allow is not actually chaos. <laughs> it's not actually chaos. It is actually inclusion in the best sense. And that um, there are, but there are circumstances I could easily imagine where an employer is put in such a bind by accommodations that it does materially impair their business. And in that circumstance, the statute's pretty clear that they don't have to grant the accommodation. But when you're talking about an arrangement of picking up shifts, Sarah, that is a, one of the most normal kinds of arrangements you see in workplaces in the United States of America as shift trading. That is, happens constantly. My, my son, who's now at UC Santa Cruz, go banana slugs, there are no known predators. Um, he was a waiter when he was in, in between schools. And there's a group me where there is just constant shift trading. Like this is the kind of thing that goes on in a lot of workplaces. And so, you know, this, this concept that shift trading is an undue hardship, ugh, very, very uncomfortable with that. And the result has been that under so many other statutes, religion is much more protected and then under Title VII, it gets this weird de minimis treatment, and it's just been a sort of odd um, piece of it. Also worth pointing out that that 1977 precedent wasn't even technically based on Title VII statutory language. It was based on the identical language in um, an EEOC guideline that predated the 1972 amendment that we're actually talking about here. Um, anyway, uh, also a fun case, though, that we'll get to talk about, I think, an oral argument, I kind of hope so at least, is that Abercrombie and Fitch case from 2015, where Abercrombie and Fitch refused to hire a young Muslim woman because she was going to wear a headscarf. Mm -hmm. And that violated what they wanted people to wear who worked at the stores, which you can imagine. <laughs> uh, she won that case. So yeah. that's exciting. Yeah. Because uh, of course she did. As she well should have. And that was under Title Seven. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is clearly coming out one direction. In that sense, it's not that interesting a case. But Hardison will finally be gone and over. And you'll have some new standard that redefines undue hardship in some more meaningful way, perhaps. Yeah. If the Marines can accommodate turbans and beards, the post office can accommodate some shift changes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last thing up, David, I have some appellate Twitter just housekeeping that we need to do. Yeah, let's do so it. I mentioned John Elwood on that true threats case. So John Elwood made a big mistake. Uh oh. He tweeted a picture from outside the window of the Eighth Circuit, which is on the 27th floor in St. Louis. The picture is quite lovely. You can see the arch. And he said, Argument this morning in the highest court in the land. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, 27th floor. Hmm. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. <laughs> As many people pointed out on Twitter, the Seventh Circuit's Chicago 27th floor courtroom is likely higher because Chicago's altitude is 130 feet higher than St. Louis's. And Atlanta's altitude is 270 feet higher than St. Louis. 
And the 10th Circuit's Denver courtroom beats them all because the altitude in Denver, of course, is just so high. So it kind of depends whether you mean from the ground or from (laughs) sea level. Uh, It's an interesting appellate question, actually. What counts as the ground when you're talking about the highest court in land? By the way, this is a pun on the highest court in the land, of course, refers to the Supreme Court, meaning highest court of last resort, if you will. But actually, when you say highest court in the land, most people think you mean the basketball court at the Supreme Court, which sits above where they hear cases. Well, in Colorado, to be fair, Sarah, there's a whole also other definition of higher <laughs> highest court in the land. So, also true. <laughs> so the 10th Circuit might have it on two counts. True. So thank you, John Elwood, for really starting that important conversation that I feel in the end was unresolved. Although I do think St. Louis probably loses by any of the definitions that we go with here. Yeah. Okay. Next up, we have not revisited our font conversation in a long time, but Anthony Blinken sure did. So he sent out a memo from the State Department and the subject line was, the Times, New Roman, are a changin', <laughs> directing everyone to move from Times, New Roman to Calibri, a sans serif font in 14 point for all papers submitted to the executive secretariat. Okay, now he, we, we not only have a font controversy, we now have another pronunciation controversy. Oh no, you, what do you, how do you say it? You called it Calibri? Yeah. I call it Calibri. And he... And you called it sans serif? Yes. I call it sans serif. <laughs> okay, well, that one's wrong. It okay. is serif. Serif, <laughs> I'm right. 100% sure about. Right. Calibri, I doubt there actually is a correct pronunciation, though mm. now that I've said that out loud, we will know that within a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes, clear this up for us, listeners, please. Yeah, also, I mean, that's just a huge shift, I think. Big deal. Big deal in the font wars. Well, so here's my question. So when I saw that, you sent that this morning into Slack, I I couldn't picture Calibri Calibri. So I literally went open to Google Doc, made the text Calibri, and then switched back and forth to Times New Roman. Uh-huh. And I can't quite get why one is more accessible. You know what serifs are, right? And therefore what sans serifs are? No. so that's going to be part of the problem here okay so times new roman is a serif font meaning that each letter has little feet at the top and the bottom oh okay calibri is a sans serif sans meaning without feet feet. serif means feet okay so so it's moving from feet to unfeet Gotcha. And by unfeeding your font, you make it more clear? Yes, because the feet can make the letters kind of move into each other. And so in a sans serif font, each letter is a little bit more separated and distinct looking. Got it. My goodness. That's the theory, at least. This has made the whole podcast worthwhile because I literally... (laughs) I can't believe you didn't know sans serif. (laughs) I had no idea. I had no clue. I just... It's a mystery. Like, you know, the whole die, font world. Die, David, die for not knowing <laughs> The whole font world is mysterious to me. Like some of these, what's wow. the Arial? Like I, I type by default, that's the default font on Google Docs is Arial. Yeah. 
Yeah. Where does that come from? Like, I have no idea that. Like, why is it the default? So it's a sans serif font. You can go yes. look at it and it doesn't have little feet on it. And then, <laughs> and then comic sans. So yep. sans does that serif. mean it's a, it's a sans serif font that's. Yep. Funny? That's what the sans. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Whereas century school book has serifs. Cambria has serifs. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, now I, I, I understand so much more. Um, but of course, from brings up, and I know we've talked about it before, the great, one of the greatest articles ever written in the history of the internet. I'm Comic Sans, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> in McSweeney's under the category. McSweeney's has great stuff. Short imagined monologues. And we've <laughs> absolutely got to put that in the show notes, even though it's a little bit, you know. I don't consider that profane, but there are, is profanity in the, in the essay. But, <laughs> but if it's oh not my profane, gosh, just wait. <laughs> okay, last thing. Appellate Twitter has had a meltdown over a change in the Third Circuit. I know those of you listening who are appellate Twitter followers and nerds were wondering how I had taken this long to get to it. So the Third Circuit seeks comment on proposed changes to its local rules that would establish... 5 p.m. Eastern time filing deadline for documents filed in person and electronically. Three exclamation points, put Howard Bashman from How Appealing. (laughs) Okay, this is a big deal because basically all the other circuits, it's midnight. And so if you've ever worked at a law firm, it's well known that on filing day, you don't have dinner plans. You're just working till midnight. And that's really for everyone. I can say in our household, there was a filing deadline last night and it was deeply annoying for me, the spouse. Yes. So the Third Circuit is saying, hey, let's move it to 5 p.m. Third Circuit, by the way, is that like Pennsylvania breadbasket area. Um, Total meltdown. So the meltdown <laughs> falls into a couple of categories. One, that they just, they're not, they don't mind if everyone has the 5 p.m. deadline, but you can't have just the third circuit because then you're going to have to look up which circuit has which filing deadline each time for fear that you've confused the third circuit with the fourth circuit or something else. Fair enough. I hear that. Number two, mm-hmm. nope, not okay with 5 p.m. everywhere. That, that sucks for California that now has a 2 p.m. deadline, which basically means you're just pulling the late shift the night before and that filing days would kind of be irrelevant, except of course they're not going to be. Instead, you're just going to be scrambling because as nobody heard of laws of thermodynamics, gas will expand to the container in which it is provided. That's true for any deadline. That's just how it works. But it it would be kind of harsh on California. Yeah. Uh, And the third argument is that this is somehow worse, but then some people said it was better for pro se litigants who might not have access to, for instance, internet or computers until midnight. And so they already had to file by sort of an end of business 5 p.m. deadline. And this actually levels the playing field. But then other people were like, no, because they're not going to necessarily know the rules. Um, David? Oh, wait. And then... (laughs) This Twitter account called Fifth Circuit Pitchbot had the best tweet response. (laughs) All filings for the Fifth Circuit are due by 7 a.m. so we can pick up Whataburger breakfast sandwiches afterward. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I, if this was a statute, I would call it the Associate Kindness Act of 2023. (laughs) Because as you know, you, whatever the deadline is, you go to it. And it doesn't even really matter when the, because I, I came up pre- ECF and the deadline was five. And you know what? We got it done. It was fine. 
Grandpa then, took his covered wagon down to the courthouse. <laughs> I did. God, I saddled up the pony and I rode it down there. <laughs> and but and then ECF comes along, and what happens is, sure enough, the scrambling that happened at four thirty in the afternoon is happening at eleven fifty eight p.m. Um, as you're, you know, uploading that last PDF. And I don't think the briefs were any better for being filed at midnight, but my life was worse. Um, and as far as the different courts having different deadlines, well, welcome to law practice, man, because, you know, when I, I practiced in federal The local district- rules are 100 pages everywhere. The idea that oh. this one change was going to mean you don't read the local rules. No, you already had to know what font to file in and a million other things that are different in each circuit. Totally. This was the thing that's like pushing you over. But I feel very strongly about this. The third circuit should move to 5 p.m., and every other circuit should move to 5 p.m. I agree with you 100%. 5 p.m. is the end of the business day. It is not midnight. File by five. It's not a problem. Yeah, you're you're one you're 100% correct on that. And yeah, uh, I, I can guarantee you. And there was a point in one of the trailing sort of Twitter comments that pushing these deadlines later into the night. I'm not sure it's created better work. Because there's no. no, not at all. I mean, because I do also think there's something about late night mistakes, late night, haggard, bedraggled, late night, last minute changes. And there's mm. track changes. And then when you hit accept, you don't notice that now there's two periods or whatever. Like, nope, it's all bad. Yeah, no, 5 p.m. is totally fine. 2 p.m. is fine. And look, it's not it's even worse, Sarah, when you practice uh, the more federal courts, district courts and courts of appeals that you practice in. It's not just that every circuit has its own rules that are pretty voluminous. It's now getting to the point where a lot of district court judges have their own rules for their own district court, their own courtroom. And so any case you file, one of the first things you're going to have in your case file is you're going to have a copy of that, the, the district court, court's rules for his own chambers. You're going to have a copy of any district court rules for the district generally. You're going to have a copy of the appellate court rules when you get to the appellate stage. This is just normal stuff. It's irritating that you have to say, if you're in the a district in New Mexico, that they're going to have some unique rules that the Southern District of New York doesn't have. It's annoying, but it's just a super fast internet search, click print, you've got the rules, comply with them, and off you go. So. And with that, another Excellent podcast comes to its inevitable <laughs> conclusion. Outstanding. And literally before these cert grants, we had nothing. We had nothing. And those, but those cases, they're fascinating. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Please rate us. Uh, please uh, subscribe. Please check out thedispatch.com. And we will be back next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.